0: I thought we could call this week Indian summer, but we looked it up and you can't have Indian summer before November 11th. Who knew there were rules to this thing? It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here to start off the week with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston and Layla Atassi. And I know you had to all have glorious weekends because it was glorious weather. Oh, just beautiful. Perfect. perfect fall.
1: I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to go inside. It was like, what else can I do out here? Like, <laughs> I,
0: <laughs> yeah, it was just wonderful. And we're going to have it all week. Uh, and once we get to Thursday, we could start calling it Indian summer, not before. Let's begin. What do Cleveland healthcare workers have to say about all the death and suffering they are seeing as a result of COVID 19? Leila Tasi. Hannah Drown delivered the quintessential story about this, really brought home what it means for all these loons who aren't getting the vaccine and all of the damage it's doing to the psyches of the people who have to treat them.
2: Yes, she did. She she brought us these firsthand accounts of five local doctors and nurses who have been at the front line of the pandemic for nearly two years now. And, and now they're in the grips of yet another wave of COVID caused by the unvaccinated masses. Only a little more than half of Ohioans are vaccinated, and 95% of the people hospitalized with COVID are unvaccinated. So these doctors and nurses, speaking on the condition of anonymity, describe for Hannah the kinds of suffering they're seeing in this latest wave, the emotional toll it takes on them and their colleagues, and the frustration and the bitterness that they feel about the unvaccinated. Perhaps the most heart-wrenching story was that of an unvaccinated pregnant mother who came in with pretty advanced COVID and her oxygen levels were so low that she needed to be intubated and doctors had to perform an emergency C-section and the baby didn't survive. And because of the restrictions on visitation in, in COVID units, the baby's father couldn't be there. So here was this grieving mother, intubated and all alone in the hospital, one of the nurses sat by her side and cried with her for hours. I mean, just just heart wrenching, and all because of unvacc- you know, an unvaccinated, uh, you know, someone who chose not to be vaccinated. In another case, a man traveled unvaccinated and contracted COVID while on a trip, and he ended up giving it to his elderly parents and lost his mother to COVID. I mean, that would haunt you forever. The nurses and doctors describe the embarrassment and the remorse that many patients express in their final hours and they call they call their family members just before they're about to be intubated and they say things like, get vaccinated, this isn't a joke, I can't breathe. But, you know, another problem that all of this has exacerbated is the nursing shortage. Hospital resources are so taxed and and the work environment has become so stressful that nurses are leaving. And the intensive care nurses that Hannah spoke to reported that in intensive care, the rule is typically that a nurse can safely and effectively care for two patients during a shift. Often now, they're responsible for twice as many. It's it's really a potentially dangerous predicament. You know, incidentally, I have a family member who's an ICU nurse who's out on maternity leave, and she has decided not to go back to work because Mm -hmm. she's heard these same stories from colleagues and is so afraid that being stretched that thin would cause her to make an error that could cost her her license or much worse, a patient's life. You know, so at any rate, Hannah's story is so compelling, worth checking out on Cleveland.com.
0: Yeah, the words wrenching and haunting, you, uh, reading that story, it just, it kind of makes your blood boil and part of it makes you want to cry. And then you have in the same, in the same time frame, Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback saying, I've done research and I know that this is not the right way to go. He's a moron. I mean, it's, you, you, you've done research. What you went on Facebook and read about a worm medicine for dogs and horses that will save your life. It, it's, it's so frustrating that you have people that, that are looked up to like him out there peddling complete nonsense that justifies decisions by people not to get the vaccine and then they die. I mean, that was one of the, most disgusting stories of the past week, Aaron Rodgers lying about being immunized and then claiming his homeopathic remedies count as immunization and and just the words. I've done my research. No, there is no research. There is no research that backs up such nonsense. And people should read Hannah's story if they're on the fence about whether they should get this shot or not. We have it in our power to not die from this virus. And yet so many people won't do it. Great stuff. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the version of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine that comes across in a deposition in the gerrymandering case different from the version we saw regularly in his Wine with DeWine coronavirus briefings in 2020? Laura Johnston, he does not come across like a nice guy in the deposition.
1: No, he's not always the hokey grandpa wearing university ties and hosting ice cream socials and sending out his wife's recipes for, you know, Thanksgiving he is a testy politician sometimes. And you think about it, he's been around for decades at the top of the food chain of of Ohio politics. So he knows what he needs to do to survive. And this showed up in this deposition. It's a two-hour deposition in the redistricting case where he was obviously on the Ohio Redistricting Commission. And the argument is that these maps are unconstitutional. So he was allowed at one two-hour deposition. And it seemed like he was meandering, kind of wasting time with some of his answers. He so irked one of the plaintiff's lawyers that the lawyer accused the governor of interrupting him, giving non-responsive answers, and running out the clock. And that, in turn, led Bridget Coons, lawyer with the Ohio Attorney General's office, to basically tell the lawyer, you can't, you can't lecture the governor. But, I mean, he just... He definitely showed his 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 testiness. Well,
0: maybe the lawyer can't lecture the governor, but we sure can. (laughs) You know, he stood up late last week in front of uh, the media and he said the maps are not going to fly. I mean, it was almost like a joke. Yeah, there's no way they're going to fly. So when you go into the deposition, you're supposed to do that in good faith. They're trying to get to the heart of are these maps no good? And he has made statements that he knows this is a problem, that the maps they created are a problem. So why not go in and just be forthright? Instead of being the kind of a jerk and being difficult and trying to, to get through the time by by eating up lots of it with pointless words, you know, because when he appeared before the media, it wasn't that version on last week. It was, yeah, yeah, the maps aren't going to fly. No way. No how. Um, it's kind of a surprise, I think, for people. I mean, they had tens of thousands of people watching those wine with the wine things, all or, or many having the warm fuzzies. And that's not really Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine in the deposition might be more than Mike DeWine.
1: Well, exactly. He's a lawyer. He knows the tricks of a deposition. He's not just some guy off the street who's never been in front of a, a lawyer before. He knows what to do. And think about it. He has spent four decades in politics. He's been a U.S. senator, a congressman, lieutenant governor, attorney general, state lawmaker, and Greene County prosecutor. So he knows how this works. And and Jeremy Pelser did a nice job with this story. He dug up this 1992 campaign when deWine ran unsuccessfully for senate against democrat john glenn and i mean knowing now john glenn and his reputation and how lauded he is but he had a really dirty campaign where he showed a toy astronaut banging a drum like the energizer bunny and just said john glenn keeps owing and owing and owing which does not really jive with the mike dewine reputation or persona that we've seen in public, the last couple of years.
0: Well, he also has tried to convince Ohioans that he's working for them, that right. he's serving them. Well, the the gerrymandering case is not supposed to be confrontational. It's supposed to be seeking the truth. So go in, tell the truth. It's a civil case. It's not going to have a personal liability. This is about getting to the right place. So going in and and blocking the lawyers that are trying to show. these are gerrymandered maps that mike dewine helped create it's it's sad but but it was worth the deep dive check out the story on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio what are the immediate plans for cleveland mayor-elect justin bibb when he takes office in january and how does he say he will get ready lisa garvin we spent the better part of an hour with him the day after he was elected and we published a bunch of content from that over the weekend What are his plans? He's got quite a laundry
3: list, but he he did say that he wants the pacing to be correct. I mean, he doesn't want to rush in and do a lot of things at once. He's going to be very deliberative about this. But I think at the top of his list, there are several items having to do with public safety. I think at the top of the list was a new police chief. Uh, Chief Calvin Williams is stepping aside, so Bib will be able to appoint his own police chief. He wants to get more desk-bound cops back on the street. He's talking about adding in violence interrupters and mental health first responders and also increasing officer pay which is probably good news to those cops out there working the beat now and hopefully as a good recruitment tool to bring more people into the police department he's got some plans for arpa money you know it's kind of the things that we've talked about for years actually lead paint public safety again, neighborhood revitalization, although he's really focused on the southeast side, which is where he's from. So I guess we're talking like Buckeye, Shaker, Mount Pleasant, you know, that area, and the digital divide. And he does want to take about $30 million of that ARPA money and use it in participatory budgeting, where uh, members of the community can weigh in on what they think that money should be spent on. He also wants to take a more active role in Cleveland schools. Not really sure what that's going to look like that, but I'm sure he has quite a few ideas. But he did say at the end of all this, when he talked to us, he says, I can't do this in 100 days. I might not even be able to do it in my first term, but I just want to get the pacing right. And, you know, just so things kind of, you know, get good review and and everything before it moves forward. So, yeah, he's got a lot on his plate.
0: I thought it was interesting. It was the day after he was elected and he's already talking about a first term, like he's expecting a second, (laughs) a little (laughs) presumptuous. You got to show some stuff before we get there he He did uh, talk, I mean there were a couple of things about the schools. He seemed to support Eric Gordon, as CEO. He, he said he will work with them and reach out and be more active. but the the you know we were looking for big ideas, right? I mean th- this was a mandate election. He won overwhelmingly. It was a repudiation of the status quo represented by Kevin Kelly, the current council president. But the only real big idea that I heard because he kept pushing those aside, was universal after-school care. And the more I think about that, the more I think that could be transformational. If you think about it, we've all talked to people who dread the phone ringing between three and six. That's after school lets out, before but before parents get home. It's when kids get into trouble. It's where violence occurs. We've had gun battles as kids walk home from school. And his idea is we gotta keep them busy. We gotta We gotta do things that'll keep them busy during those hours, he's talking about working with the Boys and Girls Club, an organization that we pretty much revere here. uh, To do that, imagine what would happen if he took some of that ARPA money and set up a system where the kids were occupied from the moment they showed up at school until their parents got home, how much would that cut violence? Layla Tassi, you had to be impressed with that. You've put a lot of thought into the Boys and Girls Clubs.
2: Yes, I agree, and I think that uh, that a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club would be would be tremendous. I mean, having spent a lot of time at the clubs, I I know you know I've seen it happen. How how closely the staff there monitor these kids and, you know, during the hours that they're there and and beyond. I mean, it's, it's a um, it's, it is, that really could be a transformational kind of a a shift in, in how the city interacts with uh, with families in the community.
0: Yeah. He's got a lot to do. And in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, Lisa, he's talking about how he's going to build his cabinet, but he didn't provide any details. He said those would come this week.
3: Yeah, because he, well, he named his transition team. I I don't, I haven't seen any names, but he is working on his transition team. And I'm sure that they'll be advising him on cabinet positions, but I haven't heard anything unless something happened in the last 24 hours, whether he's picked anybody or put out a list or whatever.
0: No, he said that would come this week. So I think we'll hear this week just how he's going to go about that. So some news to look forward to. It's today in Ohio. Who is the new Cleveland City Council president? How did he get the vote so quickly? And what does he say about his plans come January? Layla, I was a little bit surprised how quickly they railroaded this. And it makes (laughs) me wonder, did he promise stuff to people like Mike Polencic to get them on board so fast?
2: I don't know. You know, (laughs) like... We predicted this last week that Councilman Blaine Griffin called the meeting to choose the next council president because he did indeed have the votes to to get the job. Uh, On Friday at a special caucus, all the reelected and newly elected council members gathered at City Hall to make this decision this was more interesting than in some past years because Councilman Kerry McCormick was an actual contender for that job. And some new members, such as Councilwoman elect Rebecca Moore, were seen as, uh, as wild cards in the voting process. And in the days before the vote, she was arguing that rushing to get this vote in just days after the election was kind of inappropriate and didn't give members a chance to process their victory let alone decide who they would support for council president. But in the end, they all voted unanimously for Griffin, and that included McCormick. In fact, McCormick was the one to nominate Griffin. Not only that, they did also invoke the unit rule for this vote, and that's that silly rule that says that the caucus must vote unanimously or risk getting banished from future caucus meetings. Moore was among those who objected to that tradition, And and yet in the end, they all voted to invoke the unit rule and then they all voted unanimously for Griffin. You know, I don't know. In his acceptance speech, he said that the voters spoke in their resounding support of mayor elect Justin Bibb and that Bibb's election was a mandate for change. So with that in mind, Griffin vowed to kind of individuate from the former leadership of Kevin Kelly and from outgoing Mayor Frank Jackson, and Griffin, of course, will have to overcome the perception that he is of the establishment, having both served as a part of Kelly's leadership team and as a member of Jackson's administration for years in charge of community relations. Somehow he overcame all that and and got the unanimous support of his of his council members who seemed very divided over this in the weeks leading into it. So I don't know. Your theory on that is uh, is interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I've been uh, I've been witness to these over the years, and it's not surprising that it becomes unanimous. Once somebody gets the votes, they call the people that might be going against them. I got the votes. And then it's very quick that the person running against them gets on board. It's not a surprising nominated him. But I would like to to point out something silly about the caucus. Normally in a legislative body where you have two parties, There are separate caucuses, a Democratic caucus and a a Republican caucus. There is no Republican. This is all Democratic. So there's no point to the caucus. And frankly, if I were a new council member... I might want to be banished from those, so I never have to attend them because anybody that's ever covered one knows nothing good happens there. It's politicians coming in to ask for endorsements. It's it's just a big waste of time, but they provide pizza to the members. And so I guess they show up. It's well, you if
2: you remember, the only time the only time in recent history where there was a, a member of a different party was when Brian Cummins was uh was a part of council and he was with the Green Party, and yet they included him in the, in the Democratic. <laughs> Yeah. caucus so uh, you know it's it's an interesting tradition but but um you know it, when to your point about about you know did griffin promise something to these members i think it really does boil down to the fact that he had gotten he, he had reached the tipping point he had he had gotten enough votes to to know that he had this this in the bag and at that point do you really want to be the council member who runs afoul of the the imminent Yes. <laughs> new council yes. president.
0: But yes, because that would show independence. The unit rule is a bogus way of forcing people into line. What would it say to the community if you had independent people on the council saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not ready. Oh I don't God. think we should be voting this quickly. So I'm not going to vote for you. I'm not opposed <sighs> to you. I'm just not going to vote for you. I think the voters need to know that the people they elected are independent.
2: Instead, They
0: immediately fell into line.
2: I just I just want to point out to listeners that on Friday you and I were having this discussion and we were arguing the opposite positions. You are the one telling me that that, you know, everyone falls in line behind the president because they don't want to run afoul of them. And I was the one saying, but what about all the independent voices? So that's very well, interesting just, that I wasn't <laughs> arguing for it.
0: I was explaining <laughs> it. But I this was one where you have a bunch of new council members that are running as it's time for a change. And look, remember, they had said they were not going to invoke that rule, that they would do it in January. But for this vote, they wouldn't do it. And that's the first thing they did. The first action of the council elect. I was
2: pretty, uh, yeah, I was pretty aghast at that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we didn't, I mean, I did not see that coming. And again, what is the message? You know, Rebecca Marr immediately acquiesced. What does that say to the people who looked to her like, hey, You know, Tony Bracatelli would have voted in line. We were looking for somebody different.
2: Yeah, she said something along the lines of, you know, okay, I'll 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 vote for this. uh, But I just want to be reassured that in the future, our council president will be very transparent with us. (laughs) That was the
0: I don't know. I think I think it sends a bad message that the first thing they did was just fall completely in line. We'll see. It's today in Ohio. What potential weaknesses did Ohio Republican legislators create for themselves in their new congressional maps, giving them even more Ohio seats, despite a vote by Ohioans to end all the gerrymandering? Laura, this is interesting because in their power grab, they've created some vulnerabilities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a fascinating story by Andrew Tobias, who really took a look at the map created by the Republican senators, um, the Senate rather than the House, because they both came out with plans last week. The map would give more seats to Republicans, this possible 13 out of the 15, but a lot of the districts are more competitive and make it tougher for incumbents to keep their seats. So there are some districts that carry a GOP advantage of five or fewer percentage points, that including a Includes a toss-up basically in Cleveland's western suburbs, and that's a big change from the current map where no one is closer than eight percentage point. And this is a fascinating statistic: none of the districts changed hands during the decade they were in effect. So what they made was four four Democratic and twelve Republican safe seats, and it never went the other way. So there's a. a, a nonpartisan way to measure maps it's called Dave's redistricting app that looks at all these and actually calls the Senate map okay under compactness and competitiveness compared to bad and very bad for the current lines yeah
0: I was I was surprised to see it but we also did wonder when the Constitution was changed how much trouble the the they would have drawing gerrymandered maps for Congress. It's still really easy for the state legislative maps, as we've seen, and that's why we're in, in Supreme Court. But it's a lot harder when you're dealing with, you know just a little more than a dozen seats. And that's what they ran up against. And the only way to do the power grab, which they did because they're not acting in good faith, was to make themselves vulnerable. It's going to be very, very interesting. To see how that plays out if it stands i wonder if there'll be as vigorous a lawsuit challenge to these maps as there have been to the legislative
1: well i assume so because still lots of people are not going to like it like marcy captor's district now represents toledo and western cleveland we've talked a lot about this as the snake on the lake district but new districts would connect all the way down to mansfield to ashland for her which is like she's been this very lake erie Kind of champion, it would completely change her district, which is interesting. Max Miller, who moved to Rocky River just to run against Anthony Gonzalez in this group, is going to completely get a new uh, congressional seat. He could end up in a prim- like primarily almost Democratic seat if they tap into what is Chantal Brown's district. So, I wonder if it's going to be the people who are in these seats that end up fighting for him, which would be really interesting.
0: But let's face it, the Marcy-Captor district for the last 10 years has been ridiculous. When they extended it from Toledo to Cleveland to Ribbon along the lake, that made no sense. So bringing that back to compactness and if she has to fight for it, she has to fight for it. But what they did before was the definition of gerrymandering. It's good stuff. It'll be it's this isn't played out yet. We'll see it go back and forth. They have until the end of November to to approve them. Right.
1: Yeah, I believe so, because, you know, again the ohio redistricting commission basically threw up its hands and said we we're not going to do our job here you go legislators you you figure it out
0: yes indeed it's today in ohio What refreshing promise is Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley making if he wins the governor's race next year? One that raises questions about incumbent Mike DeWine's lack of action on the same issue. Lisa, I read a story over the weekend that we produced that had a Republican strategist saying people in Ohio just don't get the nuances of HB6 and the scandal, which is hilarious to me because they do. (laughs) I hear from them. It's really easy to understand. First Energy spent more than 120 million, half of it in bribes to get billions of dollars from Ohioans that they didn't have coming. And our elected officials and our PUCO completely in bed with them. That's not that hard to understand. What would Cranley do about it?
3: Mayor Cranley, if he's elected governor, says he will take a broom to Columbus and clean house at PUCO. He would fire all five members. Uh, Currently, the member makeup is three Republicans, one Democrat and one Republican leaning independent. Uh, None of these, as we must mention, are not accused of wrongdoing. He is, however, open to reappointing Jennifer French, who took Sam Randazzo's place when he left after the FBI raid. Ohio law does allow the governor to remove members for neglect of duty, malfeasance, or inefficiency. So it'll be interesting to see which ones, you know, if he gets elected, which character or which uh, terms he would use to do that. But I Beyond that, he wants to reform the nomination process. He wants to restore full funding to the Office of Ohio Consumers Council and then approve a request for an independent audit of uh, political and charitable spending, which uh, there was an audit that got burned, apparently, by Sam Rondaza with the request of former First Energy executives. Now, Governor DeWine says he's not going to fire anybody from PUCO while he remains in office, and he called Cranley's
0: comments political.
3: So, and this could be a big step.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, overnight, all, all of a sudden overnight, I'm a, a fan of Cranley because somebody needs to do something to clean this up. Mike DeWine has done nothing. I mean, remember, he stood by his PUCO chief, even as the FBI was raiding mm-hmm. his house, saying, I, I don't think there's any sign he's done anything wrong. And he's a former attorney general. Th- this is a big step. Uh, you've been waiting for... HB6 and the incredible corruption of our government to become a, an issue with candidates. It has not yet. If Cranley starts pounding on this, there is so much red meat there to seize upon. And if he keeps putting this before the voters so they can see the outrage of what DeWine's administration and the PUCO and all these people have been involved in and in protecting That's a big thing. It could make a difference in the race. I I wonder if this gives him an edge suddenly on Nan Whaley, what do you think?
3: I, I don't know, it's still too early to say, and you know, Nan Whaley has not been a fan of Pucco anyway. I think the two are actually kind of evenly matched as Democratic candidates, but like I said, their platforms will become clearer as, as the election advances, as the, election, a candid, the campaign advances. But I, I, I don't know why Governor DeWine would not want to wash his hands of this. I mean,
0: why, why he should fix it? Right. He should fix it. He should propose abolishing the PUCO as it currently stands and do exactly what Cranley's talking about. It's not working. I mean, there was a quote from the CEO of First Energy saying people can't tell if Sam is working for the PUCO or working for us. That's a problem when the head of First Energy is talking in that kind of wild fashion. And yet no one in power in Columbus, will do a thing about it. So finally, we have somebody pushing it as an issue. I would think Mike DeWine might start worrying about it now. Mm-hmm. It's today in Ohio. What Cuyahoga County supported agency with no accountability to voters? Did Metro Health CEO Akram Boutros take aim at during a county budget hearing? And what is he saying he can do better? Layla, this was a big deal, standing up like he did before the county council and taking a big swing with a baseball bat. What's he upset about?
2: That's exactly what happened. Boutros claims that the county's behavioral health and addiction services are not up to par And he asked county council for $10 million to do a better job. He said that the 70 contracted providers and support agencies associated with the Alcohol, Drug, Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board lack a cohesive strategy, coordination, and accountability. He didn't really specify to council exactly how the current services are failing to meet the the needs of the community or. Or how he would use the ten million dollars that he's requesting to to make these improvements, he just said that he would shift the responsibility for the continuum of care to our major health systems, which of course includes metro health. he He denied to reporter Caitlin Durbin that his request has anything to do. With the fact that Metro Health is seeking to is building a 110-bed behavioral health and addiction services in Cleveland Heights and that it's opening next year there. Uh, but you know, Scott Ozecki, who heads the Adams Board, told Caitlin that he was completely blindsided by Boutros's statements before county council and that he felt it was kind of a slap in the face to their dozens of providers. He said he believes in the work that they do and that Boutros is wrong about the lack of accountability. He he said the, the Adams board evaluates each of its providers' outcomes and that this year they added a compliance team to ensure funding is being used appropriately and that programs are meeting their requirements. And they also instated a six-month probation period for all new providers. And, you know, he noted that hospitals are good at providing inpatient care, but he doubted that the hospitals could provide the kind of outpatient care and recovery support services that the Adams board provides providers handle. So it, it seems the motivation for Boutros' request is kind of in question here. We'll have to see how county can, council will handle that during this uh, biannual budgeting well, process. Although
0: although it's a show me thing, right? I mean, you got Boutros saying it's bad, but he didn't provide evidence yet. Right. So let's see if he has evidence. But where the Adams board is saying there's accountability, they're not showing it. I mean, and we have major problems in this county. I, I mean, Boutros is making a point that when you're spending this kind of money, you ought to have be able to show the progress. You ought to be able to show the number of people you've helped and what the outcomes are. We don't see any of that. The Adams board isn't elected. It's not accountable to us. And if they're doing accountability with their providers, where is it? Show it. And, and just like Boutros, if Boutros is saying it's failing, which he's saying it is, show it. Yeah, his motives are in question because he's opening the mental health hospital. But yeah, I salute somebody that stands up and says, we're spending millions and millions of dollars on something and we have no proof that it works. So let's see the proof. Prove that it works. Well, if they not, only, it, not it.
2: only prove that it worked, that, you know, not only prove that that it it's failing it, on Boutros's behalf, I, I think he should also... Explain what he wants to do with the ten million dollars. Absolutely. I mean, why would you come to council during the budgeting process and ask for ten million without without a uh, demonstrating the plan? How are you going to How are you going to spend the money? Right. I mean, that, he's got
0: he's got to do that. It's show me. Show, both right. of them should show. What, if what is Adams if doing? Your complaint that works?
2: is that the Adams board is not is is failing with accountability. You don't show up with a with a half baked plan to you know and ask for ten million bucks without. <laughs> without a, a use for it. What the heck? Right.
0: If you're going to make that kind of a splash, you ought to have a raft of documents to hand in. And he provided nothing except the big statement. So in the next next few weeks and months will tell. Uh, it'll be an interesting conversation. I'm glad we're having it because it is tax money. We should know how it's spent and whether it's spent effectively or if we propose to spend it effectively. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're not going to get to all the questions again. We've gone over time. Thank you, Laysa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Tuesday to have another discussion of
2: the news.